You know, we know that there's a cosmic rebel kingdom that involves the human kingdoms of this world. And we know that God's heavenly kingdom eventually would take over. But what does this actually look like? What should we as the people of God expect to see? And how does this cosmic kingdom of darkness get replaced ultimately with the eternal kingdom of God? There's some things that you and I both need to know from scripture about God's sovereign plan to take over and how we need to be prepared for what's coming. We established in the first episode of the series that there is an enemy kingdom that is at war with God and his kingdom, and we're part of that kingdom, which means that there is an enemy that is against us and trying to attack us because we belong to God and his kingdom. So if we want to function as citizens of this higher kingdom that belongs to God, that is eternal, that is heavenly, um, and if we want to understand the ways of the king, part of that means that we need to understand how the kingdoms of this world and ultimately how the kingdom of darkness fits into this whole picture. What is their role in this whole equation of God's grand plan to redeem all things? So what is God's plan? Um, how does the kingdom of darkness get replaced with God's kingdom here on the new earth? I want to make that very clear. I do believe in new creation. There is a new heavens and a new earth that is coming. And that's where the kingdom of God will reign ultimately. So what is God's plan to make that effectively happen? So I just want to remind you a few things as we jump into today. Today's message is called the Mustard Seed Kingdom for a reason. I'm sure you already know where we're going with this. So first of all, what's beautiful about being children of God in a, in a fading world is that every human kingdom has an expiration date. The clock is ticking on every kingdom, every rule, every reign, every empire, every nation, and every king and sovereign that's in charge currently, and that eventually will be in charge in the future until Jesus comes. Every human kingdom has an expiration date, and that's great news for us. And kingdom simply refers to a dominion, a reign, a sovereignty, or a royal power. And we established in the last episode, kingdoms involve government, political structure, hierarchy, a domain of rulership, like territory, that kingdoms involve uh, a king or a ruler with power and sovereign authority, that kingdoms involve citizens and servants of that king, and then kingdoms also involve influence and a degree of reputation and renown and glory in that sphere of influence and reign. So all those things we already talked about in the last episode. There are a few things today that I really want to nail down because we've established what the kingdom of darkness is, what is you know encompassed in that, the different hierarchy that we see, and the different rulers and authorities and principalities, and how the human kingdoms in rebellion to God you know join Satan and his kingdom. But ultimately, the question becomes: So, what happens to them? Because we have a concept in Christianity where it's like God's kingdom takes over. What if God has explained in 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 quite lengthy detail how that actually takes place. And it actually benefits us to know the logistics behind that. I don't know, some of us are like, well, I trust God to just do what he does. But he's made known some things to you and I. And God doesn't make things known without purpose. He doesn't make known unnecessary details. And so, number one, we've got to start here. God is, and you and I have a different understanding possibly of what this might mean, but God is sovereign over all kingdoms. Notice how I didn't say human kingdoms. I mean all kingdoms, including the kingdom of darkness, meaning both spiritual and physical kingdoms. God is sovereign over that. Psalm chapter 47 verse 8 actually speaks perfectly to this. It says, God reigns over the nations. This is the best news possible for those of us that belong to him. 
that are a part of a fading world, that are in a body that's fading away, that are a part of, you know, we live in a, a society and a, and a, you know, a, a government that is slowly fading and everything about this world, Jesus says, it will fade away and be replaced by new creation. God is over the nations. God sits on his holy throne, meaning he is in charge. He's in charge. I got a lot of scripture for you this morning because I want to excite you about what's to come and what we are promised. And there's quite a few details surrounding the picture of God's kingdom that um, I don't think a lot of people really take the time to, to study and look into. Isaiah chapter 40, it says, this is my favorite passage, possibly in all of Isaiah. It says, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. What does that mean? Well, they're accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon wouldn't suffice for fuel, nor nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Now watch, all the nations are as nothing before him. That doesn't mean that the people of those nations mean nothing to God and don't matter at all to God. Apparently, people of these nations matter a lot to God. That's the whole reason John 3.16 is where it is. God so loves the world, he gives his son because he loves the world. So all the nations being as nothing before him mean this. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. When it comes to comparing things with God, when it comes to comparing the power, the rule, authority of God with that of the nations, it's as if they're to be disregarded entirely because there is emptiness before God's power, rule, and authority. They don't touch the infinite power of God and his sovereign reign. As much as the nations try and scheme, as much as human kingdoms try to rise above, you know, the, 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 the measurement that God has allotted them, they will not. God decides how far nations and kings go. 2 Kings 19.15. And I know that a lot of this is basic, but man, It makes way for what we're about to talk about. And Hezekiah prays before the Lord. This is Hezekiah's prayer. He says, O Lord, the God of Israel, watch. You go, well, God's territory is in Israel. He just owns Israel as his people. God's rule and sovereignty extends well beyond Israel. But Israel is his chosen nation. There's a difference. God is enthroned above the Caribbean. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. So when we talk about heaven and earth being different dimensions or realms, the kingdoms that occupy those spaces are also sovereignly ruled over by God. He said, Hezekiah says, you alone, meaning there's no one besides you. There's no one with you. There's no one. You alone are the God of all the nations. You've made heaven and earth. You've made heaven and earth. Second Chronicles, rather, 20 verse 6, it says, um, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Now, we're going to unpack this because, again, a lot of us have different understandings of what that really means. When you hear God rules over the kingdoms, there's a lot of presuppositions we bring to the table when we seek to understand that. We assume a lot. So when it says that God rules over all the kingdoms of the nations, here's part of what that means. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. This is why Proverbs can say that God moves the heart of the king wherever he wishes, right? 
So 2 Chronicles 20 makes it clear the power of God and the might of the eternally existent, uncreated God it is no one can withstand that. It's unstoppable. Every nation, as much as they try and scheme and gather and unite around a common goal to take down God and his kingdom, it's as if they're not even a drop in the bucket for God. Daniel 4, 17, it says, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers. You don't need to know much more about that unless you want to read Enoch. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end, watch, that the living may know. This is the point. Regardless of who's involved and what's taking place, the point is this, that the living, anyone who has the breath of God and the you know animating life force of God, which is every creature, may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And this is where we start to get in transition a little bit. Part of what it means that God rules over the kingdoms of men is not just that he allows kingdoms to only go as far as he wants. It doesn't just mean he allows kings to make decisions that he sovereignly worked into his grand eternal plan. It doesn't even just mean that the kingdom of darkness and Satan himself have to go through God to let to, you know, to do things like we see with Job or, or bringing a thorn to Paul. Satan ultimately has to come to God and say, hey, we do this, and God allows sovereignly for certain things to happen, that he's already worked in his grand scheme of redemption and salvation. But the main thing that I really want to highlight is this, that the Most High ruling the kingdoms of men means that he gives the kingdom of man to whom he wills, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. And this is when Daniel's interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's frantic, freaking out. He knows, I think intuitively, that this has to do with his kingdom. But the point is this. God gives human kingdoms. All the empires you and I have seen come and go, rise and fall, the ones that are currently set up. And every ruler and governor and king that is established right now in charge, God gives any degree of influence and authority and sphere of, of, of any territory, he gives that to whom he wills. There's nothing outside of the plan of God where he's going, I did not account for Biden. I did not account for A, B, and C. He knows everyone who needs to be in charge. And Jesus will even admit to Pilate, you would have no authority unless it was given to you from heaven. God does give people authority, knowing that they'll abuse that, oppress people with it, but it's still an opportunity to use the authority, power, and dominion for something good, even though they won't. It's the legitimate opportunity. The same with life breath that we have. We have a legitimate opportunity to use our life, to use the breath we've been given to honor God. Not everyone will. Same goes with authority and reign. Same goes with human kingdoms. Daniel 4.25, same idea. This is what, you know, the interpretation is for King Nebuchadnezzar's, um, you know, vision, I believe, is what's happening here. This is what Daniel says. There's a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King. You shall be driven from among men. This is where Nebuchadnezzar loses his ever-loving mind. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. He's turned into an animal, mentally. And physically, you start to see some characteristics of some beast which is why the nations in Nebuchadnezzar's vision or Daniel's vision are likened to beasts because that's frankly what human beings and human empires end up being left to their own devices without seeking God. They become animalistic. So Nebuchadnezzar becomes, you know, a picture of that. And he says, you shall be driven from among men 
and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, which means Nebuchadnezzar does not currently know, like deep down, that the most high rules the kingdom of men. And guess what, King Nebuchadnezzar? Because he's grown very arrogant looking at his massive kingdom. He takes over anyone that he comes across. Anyone he chooses to come against, he knows it's an automatic W. And God is going, you you don't understand. Any domain, any sphere of influence, any territory, any authority you have, I have given it to you because I've willed it. And just as easily, as we'll see in a few more texts, God can take it just as quickly as he gives it. So what Daniel 4, six verses later says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, King Nebuchadnezzar goes, look at this great Babylon, which I've built by my mighty power. It's ironic that King Nebuchadnezzar thinks this because he comes against Israel, who has grown arrogant and prideful, and he chops them down and humbles them, knowing that God is bringing judgment against you. And King Nebi doesn't even realize, doesn't even realize that same judgment is coming upon him and his empire. He goes, look at this great empire I've built, a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. Oh, king Nebi, look, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And this is, sadly, what God will say to Saul, the very first king, human king of Israel. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, just like Daniel predicted. And you'll be made to eat grass like an ox seven periods of time until you know what? That the most high rules the kingdom of men. Do things look out of God's control? Do things look like they're chaotic and there's no sense of uh, purpose in anything going on in our world? Like culture's just running mad. Society has just, you know, gotten so depraved and has declined so much that you wonder, is anyone even in charge here? Does it look like that? doesn't matter what it looks like. The truth is God rules sovereignly over the kingdoms of men and he gives it to whom he wills. I know you might be frustrated with certain people who are in charge that have not been brought low and kicked off their seats, people who are wicked and depraved and have this power still and authority, and you wonder how long will they get away with it, God ultimately brings judgment, righteous, deserved judgment upon nations, kingdoms, people that continue in rebellion. And I'll tell you, as much as you want to brag about America being A, B, and C, we're no different. We're in just as much of a danger because God takes kingdoms and he gives to whom he wills. That includes territory, that includes authority, that includes influence. So know this, and this is where we get into what about the kingdom of darkness? What about the kingdoms of man currently? First Samuel 15, 28, this is what um, the prophet Samuel says to Saul. He says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel. And this is important. Israel as a kingdom we'll look at next Monday or Tuesday. Sorry, it'll be Tuesday. My wife's birthday is Monday. Wish her happy birthday. She's 30. She hates that I'm telling you this. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and he's given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. What does God consistently do with human kingdoms? He takes and he gives. Empires rise, empires fall. 
kingdoms slowly start to grow and kingdoms come toppling down. This is the, the story that's on repeat called human history. It's the repeating narrative, that vicious cycle that never ends until someone steps in to bring an end to it. And that's the one we call Jesus. First Samuel 13, two chapters prior to this, I should have started with chapter 13. But if you go to chapter 13, uh, verse 13 and 14, this is what Samuel says to Saul. You've done foolishly. Saul does a no-no. Bad Saul. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. What's interesting is that God actually lets Samuel know what could have and would have transpired. Meaning God's knowledge goes beyond what actually happens. God actually knows everything that is possible. He doesn't just know actual reality, but all possible reality. What could have taken place if they had done this? What could have transpired if they had not done this? God knows all of that. That can prove to be a problem for some people's view of God predestining things. So he says, the Lord would have established your kingdom forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. So God answers human rebellion. Saul here being the first king of human king of Israel, God takes that kingdom because of his rebellion and obstinate heart and continual disobedience and lack of faith. The Lord has sought out a man after his heart. And this is where we get the very first picture, at least in First Samuel, of a king that will actually do the will of the Father. And Jesus is that ultimate king foreshadowed by David. That's why he's the son of David. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. So over and over, what do we see? God gives kingdoms and takes kingdoms, nations. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. This is when Saul tries to you know, resurrect the spirit of Samuel for some kind of advice on what to do with the Philistines. And he goes, the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. This is way down the line later in 1 Samuel right as Saul's about to die. So Samuel makes it very clear. I told you this would happen. I told you, you wouldn't listen. And now God has done it. God has the ability. It, it is so profound. You and I, the longer we're in something, the more false security we begin to have about, for, for example, the longer America continues to persist as a nation, continues to you know remain as a, an entity, a national entity, uh, people grow more and more prideful with some sense of false security that there's no way we'll ever come toppling down. What's interesting about what God does is he doesn't give warning <laughs> a lot of the times when a nation comes toppling down. It might be prophetic insight and a prophet comes and speaks against, but it happens so fast. You wonder, how is that even possible? Because God takes and he gives kingdoms equally as fast. In fact, Daniel chapter 5, verse 26, it says, this is the interpretation of the matter. Uh, Daniel's giving an interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's son, who is the last king of Babylon before the Persians and the Medes come in and take over, and it becomes the, the Medo-Persian Empire. Before that takes place, there's writing on the wall, and King Nebuchadnezzar's son is wondering, what the heck does this mean? And he goes, Daniel goes, here's what it means. Mene mean God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Remember how I said every human kingdom has an expiration date? Every 
human kingdom has an expiration date. Tickle, tickle, whatever it is, tickle. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, Pierce, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. God has a divine expiration date on every human kingdom that is established. And you might not like that, but that's just facts. That's big facts. Nehemiah 9.22, it says, You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner, referring to the people of Israel. Why did Israel possess the promised land? God gave them that territory. Why did he give that to them? Because he's gracious. Number one, because he made a promise to Abraham. It's a covenantal promise. Number two, it was actually judgment upon the nations, the pagan nations of Canaanites who were consistently rebelling against God. And here comes the judgment. And it's interesting how Israel will, that reverse thing will happen to them where now they're the ones receiving judgment and Babylon comes in and takes over. Or in the case of Israel, it'll be Assyria. In Jerusalem, in Judea, it'll actually be, um, or Judah, it'll actually be um, Babylon that comes in. So God gives kingdoms, especially to Israel, the land that they have, which is why Jesus, and I'm, I'm trying not to get ahead of myself, but some of these things just collide. Jesus will talk most of his parables, he'll talk about how Israel as a kingdom, the kingdom has been taken away from Israel as a national entity. And you wonder what, what's going on there. Well, part of that is explained in Nehemiah 9 with the land. God gives and God takes. Like Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and takes away. I don't deserve a thing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me, this is what Cyrus admits. This is why I like Cyrus. He's given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. It's really cool. Instead of Solomon being the king of Israel, being charged, now the kingdoms of the world have actually been given to Cyrus, a pagan king of Persia who's going to end up building, building the house through the people of Israel who are going to come and assemble themselves and go to Jerusalem, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then they'll build that. But Cyrus makes it a personal ambition. He goes, it's, I have received a charge from God to build a house for him. That's his response to having been given all the kingdoms of the earth. Okay. And there's one thing you need to know about a specific kingdom. When it comes to not necessarily Israel as a nation, okay? We'll talk about Israel on Monday, on Tuesday, the national entity, the kingdom that is Israel. But when it comes to the house and the line of David, God always promises a remnant within that kingdom. There will always be, um, or God never takes the kingdom completely away from the house of David. There's always a remnant. And Jesus ends up being the root that you know shoots up from, you know, the line of Jesse and ends up being the true son of David to establish the eternal kingdom as the son of David. First Kings 11, it says, therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, what, what the Lord says to Solomon, he says, I will tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Big bummer. Yet God says, for the sake of David, your father, just like we see God say this to Israel, for the sake of Abraham, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I'll tear it out of the hand of your son. However, God says, I will not tear away all the kingdom. 
I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I've chosen. David and his line, Judah, that tribe, and Jerusalem remain a large part of God's plan and kingdom moving forward, even into Christ and the eternal kingdom he establishes. Go down to verse 34, and he says, Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand. I'll make him a ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, um, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, I mix up the two, and I'll give it to you, ten tribes. This is, I believe, one of the prophets coming to um, speak to Jeroboam. Okay, so Rehoboam was Solomon's son. So, moving forward, all the kingdoms of the world, all empires, all nations, all rulers, God has given that as a gift. Should people be faithless, disobedient, rebellious, like Saul, like Solomon, the kingdoms will be taken just as quickly as they are given. Nebuchadnezzar, Israel, this is what God is capable of doing. And... This sad, repeating narrative of human kingdoms rising and then falling and then people being good rulers and then turning bad or their kids end up being bad and you can never maintain a good ruler and a good empire and one takes over eventually. That vicious cycle is eventually going to end with Jesus and his kingdom. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 37, this is what Daniel says about uh, King Nebi's dream. He says, you, O king, the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given. Once again, giving of the kingdom. God has given you the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory and to whose hand he's given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. In that dream, you're the head of gold. But another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. So you're going to see this on repeat. Over and over, the kingdom of man is handed over to another and then taken from them and given to another. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. So after King Nebuchadnezzar, the Medo-Persian Empire, after them, it's Greece. After them, it's Rome. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they won't hold together, just as iron doesn't mix with clay. And in those days... Of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. This eternal kingdom that's coming, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. Remember how I said every human kingdom has an expiration date that God has sovereignly ordained. Every kingdom. And ultimately, every human kingdom will be broken into pieces. Now, what that means, we're going to look at in a second. Don't assume absolute oblivion and destruction. Hold on. 
there are some things about human kingdoms that are actually assimilated into the eternal heavenly kingdom of God that invades new creation, that comes to the new earth. There are some parts of human kingdoms that are completely destroyed and done away with. So it's not just this once for all, you know, obliteration in terms of nothing about human kingdoms remain. Actually, there are citizens of these, you know, human kingdoms that can choose to align themselves with the king of heaven, God, and choose to be loyal to him and claim allegiance to the king, to the true king, Jesus. And in that way, they're part of a new kingdom. So it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone, which we know as Jesus in his kingdom, was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. Jesus' kingdom comes to break in pieces every human kingdom that exists when it actually is, when the kingdom is fully realized in Christ. He says, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Now you can go into the history, how this prophecy actually came to pass, and we see it play out in human history. The way things, especially later in Daniel's visions, with the beasts and the rams and the goats and, and all of that, and how it's very detailed, and human history proves to... Um, it validates those prophecies. But here's what I want to show you. When we talk about um, the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven will break in pieces every other human kingdom, there are a few things involved in that that you need to be aware of. Okay, The first thing is this. In the end, kingdoms will either come to God in surrender as servants or kingdoms will come to God in terror as enemies and rebels that were in opposition to his kingdom. But everyone will bow the knee and stand before the great king. Everyone will. Every nation, every kingdom, every person, every ruler, every authority in the heavenly realms, in the physical, everyone will stand at the judgment of God. Now, let me show you a few passages. These are a few scriptures that show what it looks like for the nations or the kingdoms to actually come to God in worship, in allegiance, and pledge themselves to God as their king. Psalm 68, 32. It says, O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. Selah. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice and his mighty voice. There is a repeating call to the nations in the Old Testament to come to God and praise and worship. Why? Because God ultimately doesn't want the destruction of nations, but the redemption of nations. But if people and kings remain in rebellion to God, their end is nothing but destruction. They're under the sentence of condemnation. But should they, in faith, claim allegiance to God and trust in the Son like Psalm chapter 2 talks about, kiss the sun, well, they'll be assimilated into God's kingdom. Psalm 102 verse 22, it says, when peoples gather and kingdoms come to worship the Lord, they're declaring in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise. These are not just 
uh, you know, um, scattered Israelites among the nations. These are the actual nations, the actual Gentiles, the actual kingdoms that were outside of Israel coming to worship the Lord, which is similar to what Jesus says in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well, when he says, woman, uh, time is coming. When you won't worship God here or on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but God is actually seeking all those who will worship him in spirit and truth. Isaiah chapter 60, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. Who is our light? And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. This is the future glory of Israel, as we see in the subtitle here. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth. Thick darkness will cover the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations, now this is talking about Israel, nations shall come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. This is what we see with Solomon, who you start to think as you read his story, you're like, this has got to be the one that God was talking about when he told David, your son will build me a house. This has got to be the guy. I mean, he's building the house. He's making shields out of gold just because this guy loves God. It's wonderful. He worships. He asks for wisdom. I mean, you got the queen of Sheba coming and other, you know, rulers from surrounding nations coming to hear his wisdom, right? But in the end, he ends up failing. So, not the guy. What that prophecy was talking about is Christ, who will descend from David and will be the true king of Israel, king of the world, king of the universe. And we see nations coming to his light in a, in a, in a beautiful kind of way. In, in Matthew's, Luke's gospel, we have the wise pagan, uh, wise men from the east, can't remember what they're called, magi, but they're, um, they're coming to follow the star that's leading them to the promised king of Israel, right? They come to Herod and they go, we've come to see the king of Israel. He goes, what are you talking about? It's me. Well, the king of Israel that was prophesied in the Old Testament, he's here. And they end up coming to, the star ends up, you know, hanging over the place where Jesus is born. And they walk in and that was a picture of the, the nations those who are from among the nations coming to the light, uh, the true king being Jesus. But this prophecy in Isaiah 60 is going to be a greater version of that. That was just what you might say like a, a mini picture of what God ultimately intends to do with his son is that kings, nations, peoples from all around the world and all across human history would come to his light. And kingdoms do this. Not all kingdoms are bad. Not all human kingdoms are completely rebellious. We actually see Israel uh, historically aided by a few nations at times. And like, like we see that, you know, uh, King, of si King Cyrus, like we just saw in Daniel, he actually wants to do the will of God and build the house of the Lord there. Whether it's for, you know, self-preserving purposes or not, he does desire to give Jerusalem their, you know, beautiful temple again. So now... Oh Lord, Isaiah 37, 20 says, God save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord. So the point isn't who's involved and what's happening. The point is that when God acts on a national level, for instance, when God redeems Israel from Egypt, 
he is making a name for himself. And you go, why? Because in the beginning, Moses' first visitation to Pharaoh, he goes, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and our fathers, he sent us to tell you, Pharaoh, let his people go. Pharaoh goes, (laughs) who's the Lord? I don't know the Lord. And the rest of the narrative is God revealing who he is to Pharaoh. He makes a name for himself so the kingdom of Egypt knows who the God of Israel is. And then by making a spectacle of Egypt, the surrounding nations hear of this glorious God that is among the Hebrews. They hear about his power. They hear about his supernatural intervention. They hear about his reputation and great name. And the kingdoms of the earth begin to tremble knowing we're probably next. That's a, that's a picture of what ultimately will happen um, in the new creation in the kingdom of God is that kingdoms, entire peoples, every tribe, every nation, every tongue will come to God in faith. They've heard of his name because he's made a name for himself through his salvation that he provides his people. I could give you text after text showing you that God's desire is for the nations and he uses Israel as a vehicle through which the blessing would come to the nations. We think it's Israel against the nations. And though a lot of the enemy pagan nations prove to be a thorn in their side, not all of them are evil. And God is not just about decimating everyone except Israel because judgment ends up coming on Israel eventually too. Psalm chapter 22, verse 27 and 28, it says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. Why? Because kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. So just like we started with in the beginning, God is sovereignly over all the nations, ruling, in charge, making all things work together for his grand plan and his ultimate strategy to bring salvation. He's in charge, right? Part of that involves and is connected to the fact that the nations and the pagan people outside of Israel are actually coming to turn to God. We see this with Nineveh, right? See Nineveh at the preaching of Jonah. Turn to God. Why is God concerned with the Gentiles, the pagans, when his own people are in a a complete mess? Because his heart is for the nations. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, Psalm 102 says, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Why is it that passage after passage talks about the kings of the earth? And the nations, which you might synonymously use with Gentiles. Why is text after text showing us that they're coming to the Lord? That they're actually being a part of what he's doing in the earth. Why? And why is it that Luke's gospel opens with Gentiles from the east coming to Jesus in his light? There's a reason. Isaiah chapter 2 is in the last passage. And then I want to show you something really cool in Psalm chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, 1 through 5. I told you it's a lot of scripture. Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, it says, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Now, usually mountains are synonymously, or uh, 
used as imagery to represent kingdoms. Um, so if you see a mountain, a lot of the times it's uh, and illustrating a kingdom, representing a kingdom. So this makes sense with Daniel's vision. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. Right? This is the mountain of the house of the Lord where God's uh, dwelling place is. All the nations are flowing to it. Isn't that interesting? Why are the nations coming to this high and lofty mountain? Because it seems to be like the place to be. Like this is the cool kids club. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Remember how I said Jerusalem and the house of David are a part of God's eternal plan. And there's no way, get, that's why replacement theology doesn't make much sense. Because God is not done with Israel at all. Come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. That we may walk in his paths. What, why are the nations wanting to follow God and walk in his paths? Because they've seen his light. Go, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Meaning they actually want to do the things God has commanded. They're coming to learn. They're coming to walk. They're coming to, uh, you know, um, understand the character of God to effectively obey him. It says, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. He shall beat their swords into plowshares. Seems like war is over. No more violence. No more need for, you know, killing people. Their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. House of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So all of this is a call uh, to Israel to come, come walk in the light of God. Because eventually, nations are going to come. And it makes sense. But the light is supposed to be shining through you guys. To convince the nations of your God. Let me take you to Psalm chapter 2. This is an interesting passage. Um, I'll show you why. So think of all that we've said, okay? That God is sovereignly over all the kingdoms. That he appoints whom he wants to rule over certain territories. That he gives authority and power and rule to whomever he pleases. And then he can take away kingdoms as quickly as he gives them. Uh, think about the kingdoms coming to God in surrender or as enemies and in terror because they know their destruction is imminent. Think about all that as we approach Psalm chapter 2. And don't just think human kingdoms on the earth. Think the spiritual kingdom of darkness being overtaken and thrusted out of God's creation too. Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. Now Acts chapter 4 the apostles actually quote this to make sense of what's happening in Jerusalem. They actually refer to this passage as being about the Romans and the Jewish people conspiring to kill the Messiah on the cross. That's what this passage ultimately is about. But there's, there's more going on. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they say, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, it goes, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Remember how Isaiah said, <laughs> you know, the nations are just a drop in the bucket. 
Just that. And less than that. Less than a drop in the bucket. How do you have less than a, like a half a drop? Then he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. In other words, God is not pleased with these rulers and the kings of the earth and these nations that are raging. Against who? Against God and his anointed. He is not pleased. He speaks to them in wrath and fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. This is David prophetically inspired by the Spirit of God. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I've begotten you, or uniquely appointed. Because to be the only begotten son, Jesus means he's one of a kind, one of a class, the unique one. There's none like him. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage. If you don't like that translation, go actually look it up in the Greek. Look at your Greek Septuagint and understand that Abraham actually refers to Isaac as his only begotten son. Or is it God? I forget. Either way, Isaac's referred to that. But Abraham also has Ishmael, right? So it's not his only son. So in what way is that his only begotten son? Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage. Who's God talking to here? The son. So this is where we start to see the shift from human rebels ruling over the kingdoms of the world to Jesus rightly inheriting the nations and being the one who judges with a scepter of uprightness and justice. He says, ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is what Israel was essentially going to be a part of, but they failed to be a part of it. So Jesus picks up the broken pieces as was always the plan. And he ends up being the perfect ruler, the perfect, you know, Israelite, the perfect human being, image bearer of God to be what none of us ever could and to rule on our behalf since Adam dropped the ball. Bummer. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. How? Be warned, O rulers of the earth, and serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So there's an opportunity for the nations and the rulers and the kings of the world who are opposed to God. There's an opportunity to come and serve this king, the God of the heavens, Come and serve him with fear and trembling. But specifically, it's the son. God is saying, you better serve and tremble and fear my son. Take refuge in him or you're going to be destroyed. So here's, here's where we see this transitional passage as we make, jump into the next point. It's how the kingdoms of this world are actually assimilated into God's kingdom. So he doesn't, God doesn't say, I'm going to destroy everything about you guys. He gives them a chance and says, come and serve my son. Come into his kingdom, right? And be a part of what he's doing, which is so much bigger than what you're doing. If you don't, though, there's a big fall coming your way. It's wrath. So let's look at a few passages that talk about how, how practically the kingdoms of the world currently slowly over time morph into what Jesus calls 
uh, the kingdom of heaven invading the earth and new creation coming and, and the new heavens and the new earth. I know there's a lot surrounding that when it comes to eschatology. There's a lot we could talk about, but I just want to look at a few things. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey. Look at, look at what God says. My decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms. Why? To pour out my indignation on them, my burning anger, and in the fire of my jealousy, consume all the earth. So there will be kings and nations that are absolutely destroyed. They're obliterated. They're wiped off the face of the earth. Actually, God will talk about how the very memory of them will be wiped away. It'll be as if they never existed. That's why some people hold to annihilationism. Passages like that. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 12. It says, The nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Now this is talking about, once again, this chapter where it talks about the rise, shine for your light has come. This is talking about the kingdom that is going to be uh, seemingly centralized around Jerusalem. And what Israel, I believe spiritual Israel, has to look forward to. Not national, physical Israel, but spiritual Israel. This is talking about how nation and kingdom that don't serve uh, the true king that's set up, being Jesus, it will be absolutely destroyed. But that's not the only option for these kings and kingdoms, is it? In Revelation chapter 21, it says this. When John is receiving a vision from Jesus, he says, I saw no temple in the city. This is the city of God. That's why Hebrews says, you know, the people of old in Hebrews 11, they weren't settling for the city here. They were looking for a better city, a heavenly city. Well, that heavenly city seems to have come in John's vision. And in this heavenly city that has come down to the earth, it's a new earth, the temple is actually the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city actually has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, which might speak to the cosmic powers that used to rule over the nations, those spiritual beings who were allotted authority and dominion and ability to rule in the skies, the heavenly beings that are not gods but lowercase g gods. I reference you to, again, Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm, the book. It's a fantastic read. They might be referencing that, how there's no more need for them because humanity, children of God, are now replacing them and ruling over the earth. But it says there's no need of sun or moon, so you can make that literal, the actual celestial bodies that give light. Uh, For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamp. Verse 24 says, By its light will the nations walk. The nations. Why do the nations seem to maintain that... uh, ethnic identity still because every tribe every nation every tongue will come into the kingdom of heaven and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it now this is really fascinating think about this god has talked about how enemy nations enemy kingdoms will be obliterated but there are there's always a remnant there's always a remnant 
Even when you think about how God brought Israel into Jericho, who was the remnant there? Rahab. Rahab had faith and said, whoa, don't destroy me. I believe. I believe. In fact, I'll hide you. There's some dudes coming. Hide right here under my wheat. And she hides the spies and and she goes, promise me when you come back that you won't kill me because I, I do believe that God has given you this land and you're going to wipe out the people, but don't wipe us out. And then, you know, the two spies tell her what to do, the scarlet uh, scarf or something that's hanging out her window. It's representative of way more than what's going on. And she's saved. There's always a remnant when God brings judgment on a nation, on a people. There are people who will believe. There are people who will actually choose, I, I, I want to be loyal to this king. I do not want to die. Who would want to die? You would choose allegiance, unless you're stupid. And some of those people, just pure stupid. <laughs> but there, here we have the kings and the nations walking in the light of God. What did we see in, uh, what was it, Isaiah or, or Zephaniah? I forget where it was. Isaiah chapter 2, coming to the Lord, walking in his paths, walking in his, his laws, right? But the nations and the kings, watch what they're doing. They're not just like assimilated, like you should be part of the kingdom. They're actually bringing their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. This is a picture of the, of the heavenly kingdom that is now on the earth among humanity. This is God's uh, dwelling place among man. There will be no night there. They'll bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. That's a very different picture than what we're used to of the nations, just God's kingdom coming and then every nation just nothing, nothing. Actually, it seems as though some nations and kings maintain their ethnic national identity and they still have a degree of rule and authority. And you can say, well, these are uh, the the children of God whom God has apportioned uh, a territory to rule and a sphere of influence. Like we get to reign with Christ. It actually refers to the kings of certain nations though. The nations are walking, but you can say are the Gentiles coming to Christ through faith. Salvation is for anyone. The kingdom of heaven is an open door. Gentile and Jew can come in now. But uh, there's something about what we've seen in the Old Testament that makes me think these are actually like kings and kingdoms somehow um, that bring the best of what their kingdom has to offer into the kingdom of God. And God seems to uh, include that, include dimensions of kings who submit themselves or kingdoms that, that submit themselves to Jesus as the rightful king. And they're coming in and out of this city. Just something to think about. Not saying it's completely right. But it, it actually makes sense when I think about the prophecies. It's not just like Gentiles are now citizens of the kingdom. It goes well beyond that. Um, God has extended access to his kingdom and rulership alongside his son to the common ordinary citizens of earthly kingdoms, but also to the rulers and kings who are currently set up over those kingdoms on the earth. Every human being has a chance to believe. What would it look like for a human kingdom and ruler to go, we, we want to follow that God. Well, I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like Nineveh. Now, they didn't stay that faithful. They didn't end in obedience to God and faith. But boy, for that season of them believing, 
the king goes, we need to, we need to sound the trumpet and get a fast going. Everyone, put on sackcloth. What sackcloth? Put it on. Start crying. Mourn over your sin. Repent. And we see an entire people turn to God. Is that hyperbole? Was it just exaggerated? Not all the people. But I don't know. But it's a big picture of, at least a, I'll say this, it's a very similar picture to what I believe is happening in Revelation 21. This is the basis of this whole, this whole message, this single parable, this small parable, which ironically is about something very small. Luke 13, 18. Jesus goes, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed. And I'm sure the people are going, where is he going with this? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and planted in his garden. And then it grew and became a tree. Which means over time it grows slowly. Not all at once. It takes time for that thing to reach maturity and completion. But when it does and it becomes a tree, the birds of the air make nests in its branches. Now, I've heard some speculation that whenever the birds of the air are referenced, okay, sometimes it is talking about actual birds. Other times it's actually a way to speak of Gentiles. When you, when you read um, how Israel will be, um, well, a lot of the, the judgment, the prophetic judgments that come upon Israel, when the prophets are talking about what's coming their way, talks about how they'll be desolate. Their cities and communities will be desolate. And they'll become haunts for jackals and all kinds of birds of the air. And then we see actually the, the king who takes over those regions will bring in people from the other nations he's conquered to kind of fill in those cities where the Israelites have been taken away from. So, might be some, something to think about. Especially when you think about King Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Uh, of him being a big old blossoming tree and you know birds of the air coming and taking refuge in it. Those are the nations of the world and the peoples of the known world under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar coming under his kingdom. So there might be precedents to say that the birds of the air here aren't just a part of some uh, beautiful picture. It's not just metaphorical, but the birds actually represent the Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And I like that Luke actually combines these two. I think in Matthew's gospel, they're actually separated. But I like that Luke kind of mashes these two together because they both communicate the same dimension of God's kingdom, which is that what? His kingdom is something that slowly takes over. And when it reaches completion, bingo, bango, it's time to get to work. And you can either come and take refuge under this king and be a part of his kingdom, or you can be in opposition to it. But the nature of God's plans of, of redemption and what he does in the world and what he does in our hearts and in our, and in our um, communities and churches, we are a very fast-paced society. We like to accelerate things. We like to take the plan of God and go, hmm, 
I'd like to microwave this for 30 seconds and have it done. And that's just not possible. What God wants to do in your heart and your life, in your communities, in your families, in your own mind and education, that's going to take time. We do serve a God of the suddenly and the right now. He could. He doesn't always do it. Because the process of things slowly changing allows for the proper framework to handle that growth long term. The kingdom of God is very similar. This is why, okay, remember in Psalm chapter 2, the kingdoms are handed over to the Son. Hmm? Matthew 28, 18, right before Jesus says to go and make disciples of all the nations, he says, know this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And you and I usually think salvation. We usually think redemption and the Holy Spirit indwelling us and being born again, you know, children of God and, and all the different spiritual aspects. But part of that, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying it's incomplete. I'm saying part of Jesus having authority is in John's gospel. I'm going to open up my Bible because I wrote it down. In John's gospel particularly, Jesus talks a lot about being given stuff by the Father, or the Father handing over something to the Son, okay? And I just took note of everything that is handed over or given to the Son. The Father gives the Son authority to judge and give eternal life. He gives the Son judgment to declare someone condemned or a part of God's kingdom. He gives him his very life, his very name, his very word. He gives him his work, his very people, and his very glory to the Son. So when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, given to me, part of that does include Jesus inheriting the nations rightly, legally, as the human representative that we need to win back our authority we lost in the garden. He does that through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And you go, that's a stretch. I've done a whole series on it. I encourage you to check it out. I think it's a part of the Divine Son of God series. But go check that out. So this is why Jesus will say things like, um, all authority has been given to me to rule and judge. He's, he's not just ruler over the physical. It's the spiritual too. It's a duality going on here. There's a dual dimension to Jesus' authority. He's the king in the heavens, in the spiritual realm, and on the earth. We, as humanity broken and separated from God in sin, we needed someone to come and do what none of us could. And that's why Jesus, through his life, death, resurrection, legally attains our right to become children of God because he extends that to us by taking our sin and death and legally paying for that so we can, he can give us his very status with the Father. And then he rules over the nations. Hebrews chapter 1 actually mentions this. Jesus is the heir of all things, through whom, you know, the Father also created the world. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So you go, why is Jesus capable of inheriting the nations? That, that's not just his rightful inheritance as the owner of the cosmos and as the one who upholds the universe, but as 100% man on the earth, he's done what is necessary to be the only true king of the world and the cosmos as representing one of us now. 
That's why Jesus is the only begotten, because he's the only one of a kind. He's the only unique one that actually does this and is this. 1 Corinthians 15.24 talks about how the kingdom is actually handed over to the Father. It says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying, what does Jesus destroy? Every rule, every authority, and every power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's why we can reign with Christ. You understand that, right? We're co-rulers with Christ. We're seated in him, positioned in him. And we actually get to rule and reign on the new earth with him. That is a, that's a crazy idea. When you think about it long enough, you go, that's bonkers. That's bonkers. Well, because Jesus has destroyed every rule, power, and authority that held sway over you. So now you can actually rule with him effectively without being oppressed by anything. Sin, death, the devil, darkness, uh, the law that enslaved Galatians, right? Cursed is everyone who cannot keep the law. And Jesus destroys death. So that now we can say, um, I think it's 1 Corinthians 16. Um And gonna look it up now. This is kingdom language. I thought it was First Corinthians sixteen, verse twenty. Um, sorry, Romans. Come on, Romans sixteen twenty. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Who's Paul talking to? He's talking to the church. He's talking to those who are in Christ, isn't he? So God intends to crush Satan under the feet of his people. Why? Because in Christ, we have his authority over all spiritual rulers, authorities, and dominions because he is the king over it all. So he's given us his very position as the first resurrected human, the perfect human being, a perfect relationship with the Father. He's given that to us as a gift. But he's the rightful king that just extends to us this gracious gift of being able to rule with him. Crazy. But the kingdom is handed over. Romans or Matthew 13. This is what it says about um, what Jesus will do in the end. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom. Meaning, at this point in human history, it is now Jesus' kingdom. A lot of Jesus' discourse in John's gospel about this world involves him saying things like, this world is ruled over by Satan. He's the rightful ruler of this world, right? But at this point in human history, here's what I'll say about this. Right now, currently, where we are in time, Jesus is king over all. He rightfully owns all things because he's the creator of all things. So he has the rightful possession of all. He's the ruler over all the nations currently, legally. But his kingdom has not yet fully taken over all the kingdoms of this world yet. Eventually, that will happen. And then it will be referred to as his kingdom. And when it's his, he will remove all causes of sin and lawbreakers. 
and he'll throw them into the fiery furnace. But the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So there's a contrast. The wicked are thrown away. Sinners are thrown away, cast aside, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the righteous, children of God in Christ, will shine in the kingdom of their father. So much to unpack there. Let me take you to something. Revelation 11. Look at the language that is used, okay? It's very intentional. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world, watch, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is, who was. You've taken your great power and begun to reign. You know, the nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. This is the picture of the kingdoms of this world becoming, notice that word, it's the parable of the mustard seed becoming the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And it's not a brand new idea either. Daniel chapter 7 is the second to last passage we'll look at. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he approached the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, a glory, and a kingdom. And this is what Jesus talks about in one of his parables, how a king went away to get a kingdom, and then he comes back to reward his servants, and one of those servants is actually punished for being faithless and not doing anything with what he was given. This is the picture Jesus is pulling from Daniel 7. How the Ancient of Days has a kingdom to give to his son, but not until Jesus actually accomplishes our work that we need done, the work on the cross, the atonement, and he lives and he dies and he resurrects and he ascends, and then the dominion, the glory, the kingdom is given to him. As our rightful representative that cannot fail like Adam did, and our perfect human king that won't fail like Adam did. And he's also God as well, so that makes it extra, extra sure that he will never fail like Adam did. And he's given all peoples and nations and languages to serve him. Now his dominion is an everlasting one which will, will never pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Good news. Like, really good news. Very very you and I are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven I want to make sure I read this right Daniel's looking at the future so the kingdom another way of communicating the kingdom is the dominion 
and the greatness of those kingdoms on the earth will be given. Remember Revelation 11? The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord. Well, in Daniel's vision, what's interpreted about the vision is that the kingdoms under the heaven are actually given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. All dominions shall serve and obey him. Pause. If there's only one dominion being the kingdom of God, why is it saying that there are these other dominions that will serve and obey him as if they maintain that identity in the kingdom of God? Because like I've been saying, think of it like this, and this just came to me. When Israel goes into the promised land, do you know what they inherit? They inherit territory, houses, gardens, fields, uh, cities, walls, everything that they didn't work for and they had no part in building and they had no, they weren't there for the building of those houses. They weren't there to plant the seeds for those gardens. They weren't there to, to, to till the soil for those fields. They didn't do anything. They inherited essentially someone else's kingdom, didn't they? God gives it to them as a free gift. He gives them this beautiful um, gift of someone else's hard work, you might say. The result of their hard work, rather. That I believe that's a picture, on a physical level, that's a picture of what spiritually takes place for the people of God. Is that the kingdoms of this world as is, whatever is included in that, the domain, the territory, the influence, the power, the rule, the reign, whatever it is. This is why saints will reign with Christ. The assumption there is that there's a portion that's allotted to the people of God individually for us to rule and reign over and steward under the lordship of Christ like Adam and Eve were supposed to do in the garden. They're supposed to expand. They're supposed to push the garden presence of God outward into the rest of the earth. And they failed. So Jesus, he doesn't start small in terms of like, I'm going to get this little portion of land and I'm going to build a nice little shed. He inherits everything that is already present being the owner and the creator himself. But as our human representative, he inherits what we lost and forfeited in the garden. So he can hand us the kingdom of heaven packaged, right? But when heaven actually comes to the earth and we have new creation and we see the new heavens and the new earth, part of that includes the present kingdoms as is are actually handed to the people of God. And those are assimilated into the everlasting kingdom of heaven. And so whatever that looks like, however God logistically, structurally works that out, however he intends to do that, I don't care. <laughs> All I know is, in Daniel's vision of the end, it's that God's kingdom takes over, and then the kingdoms of the world, under the heavens, are actually given to God's people as parts of the greater kingdom of God. And all dominions serve and obey him. Isn't that crazy? It, it just blows away your typical understanding of the kingdom of God coming. Because we're, we're so okay with just like a, a basic picture, okay? You can be minimalist, it's fine. 
I only need minimal things in life. It's fine. I don't need to know the big, the, the details. Just give me the big picture. Okay, fine. Fine, Tommy. You can live like that. But for me, I love details. And I love, if God has made clear certain things, I want to explore those things and understand them. And the typical Western evangelical picture of the kingdom of God coming is like, one day, we'll hear a trumpet, he'll come, whatever you think about the thousand year reign, and then all of a sudden, bam, the kingdom. But there's all these different glimpses of what that looks like over time. Where the kingdom of heaven slowly invades society through the people of God who, who submit themselves to the reign of Christ. And then through the people of God who follow the king, the ways of God invade the earth. And, and then you have Christian you know, followers of Jesus all over the planet. And then eventually the wicked, when Jesus comes back, the wicked are pulled out and the evil are t- torn away and, and they're cast into you know, separation from God with the enemy, with his devils, with the kingdom of darkness. It's all taken away. But what's left, the rubble, you might say, of the old creation seems to be a part of, meaning what God does in the new creation is very similar to what we see in the flood. God doesn't create a whole new planet for Noah and go, you know what, Earth sucks. There's this beautiful place called Mars. I'm gonna put some rocket boosters on your your ark and you're just gonna blast off. Hold your breath for a few minutes. God doesn't do that. The water that comes upon the world cleanses, purifies, washes, reformats, restructures, however you think of the earth's crust in that process. And when Noah's actually coming out of the ark, he sees that it's still the same world, like it's still the same planet, but it looks completely different. And it is different because God washed and cleansed and purified. Now, God said he'd never do that with water again. But Peter talks about God bringing fire to destroy. And you and I think of destruction as like complete decimation with nothing left over. Destruction, when if you look at the flood as a good explanation for what that destruction looks like, it's actually a reformatting. Like purifying, cleansing, taking away what doesn't belong. And what is left over becomes the raw material that God works with for the new. And it makes sense for how the kingdom of God actually invades the world, slowly taking over. And what's left, kind of like at the beginning of Genesis, at the creation narrative, some people speculate, and I understand there's, there's reason to believe this. When you look at the Hebrew and you look at the, the extra biblical literature in Second Temple, I understand that. But some people look at Genesis chapter 1 and they think the way Genesis 1 starts off is with a world that God previously destroyed. That's, that Satan and his the spiritual beings ruined, right? And so it's almost like this, what's left over, God reformats and restructures. Now, no matter what, God's the source of all things, okay? No matter what, he spoke everything into existence that we see and know. So whether Genesis chapter one is a, let's pick up from this broken world, the broken pieces and make it into something new, whether it's that or God is just, hey, here's a world that never existed, whatever it is. I believe that's what gives us a picture of new creation along with the flood is that what is present, the raw material that is left over, kind of like Israel going into the promised land, is given to the people of God. And whether we're like Wally 
cleaning up the mess and restructuring and whether that's what God does or whether he just goes blank and everything's perfect. I don't care. What's cool is that I'm in his kingdom and there's aspects of human kingdoms that are actually assimilated into his. Last passage I want to look at is Psalm 82. I know people are like, tell me more, tell me more. In the messages to come, if I remember correctly, let me pull up my handy dandy outline. Here's the outline of the series. The first episode, we talked about the kingdom of darkness. This episode, we talked about how the kingdom of this world transitioned to the kingdom of God. Next Tuesday, or this coming Tuesday, my wife always corrects me, don't say next. So technically this Tuesday, we're talking about Israel as a kingdom, and they become a picture of everything we've talked about these first two episodes. Then we'll look at the eternally existent king in the fourth episode. Then in the fifth one, how rebel enemies become part of God's kingdom and how we're assimilated and born again spiritually into this kingdom to inherit it, which is a spiritual heavenly kingdom. Okay? And we're glorified to new resurrected spiritual bodies that are still seem to be material. And then we'll look at, you know, the, the next episode, what it means to be a kingdom of priests and why we're referred to as that, why Israel was referred to as kingdom of priests. And then the last episode... Out, not last episode, but the episode after that, some basic components of God's structure in his kingdom. And then after that, what it means to be, uh, for God's kingdom to be present, but not yet, like fully realized. And then the last thing we'll look at last episode will be a cool event on Friday night. We'll look at every parable about the kingdom, but this is the last passage for today. I got to go. So I'm 82. Now this is why I say, go read Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm, because he does a fantastic job of Unpacking the Hebrew in this passage. Um, it says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, which everyone wants to translate to be human rulers. Well, Jesus references this to talk to the Israelites. Not a discussion for today. But he takes it, his place in the midst of the gods and he holds judgment. My view is that these are spiritual beings. Paul talks about principalities. Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, over and over. I think these are what's being referred to here. And he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And then, of course, it trickles down from the spiritual beings over certain nations and territories into the rulers of those physical human rulers of those nations and into the people, right? It says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. And deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. He said, I said you are, lowercase g, gods, Elohim, sons of the Most High, all of you. We see the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. He doesn't say because you are men says, like men, you shall die. And you will fall just like any prince. Now watch. Arise, O God, judge the earth. And judgment on the earth is not limited to people. Most every time God brings judgment on a nation, it's against their gods primarily. And of course, the people who worship those false gods... 
and who embody the ways of those false gods are judged in the process. But read about most of the judgment narratives in the Old Testament. You'll see what I mean. God mentions this is coming against their false idols, their false gods. So that's why I read this passage, and I agree with Michael Heiser's understanding of the Hebrew here, being that it's actually referring to spiritual beings that are given authority to rule in the heavens over different spaces on the earth and territories, nations, you might say. That's why different nations have different gods. Arise, O God, and judge the earth. Why? Because you shall inherit all the nations. The nations at this point being disinherited and being allotted to or portioned out to different principalities or lowercase g gods that rule over them. But eventually, this is why the Tower of Babel narrative is so important, the scattering and the different languages, and then why we have Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, where all the nations or the Israelites from those nations speaking those tongues come together. And actually, it's it's a reversal of Babel, and then God is inheriting the nations spiritually through the gospel being preached. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Not every, but in a general sense. The tribes and nations around Israel are coming. And then, you know, the Israelites go back to those countries, bring in the gospel. The way that God inherits the nations once and for all at the end is called the kingdom of God being fully realized. The kingdom of God fully taken over. That's what's going to happen. God's kingdom will fully, completely, ultimately take over. But we get to reign and rule with Christ. We get to inherit the kingdoms of the world and what's left over, apparently. And we have a degree of rule and a sphere of influence and responsibility that God will give us in Christ. And so this is, read Psalm 82, like, read it slowly. And again, I, I've referenced this, but people were asking me in the last episode, um, what was that book you referenced? And I'm going to say it again. Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. That'll do it for today, boys and girls. That'll do it for today. And then on Tuesday, we'll talk about Israel as being a kingdom that seems to be a uh, following in the footsteps of the disinherited kingdoms that came before them. If you didn't know, this is Above Reproach Ministry. All the links are in the description below. You can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com to see all the free stuff we have. Uh, we have free Bible study courses. In fact, I like going through this with you. We have an online church on the Discord app if you'd like to join and get fellowship with believers from all around the planet. It's pretty lit. A YouTube channel, obviously, and all the sermons are turned into podcasts here. So wherever you listen to podcasts, you can just listen. If you don't want to see my ugly face, don't tell me that, though. I'll take that very personal and I'll cry. We have a second podcast, Above Reproach Church Podcast, all about the local church and for the local church. We have Bible study courses. So if you want to do, if you really want to learn how to read the Bible and go deep into, you know, developing your Bible study skills, we have a 40-day Bible study skills course a 27-day, an 11-day, and then a bunch of other courses alongside that. They're all free because of generous supporters like you guys. Now, we have free devotional studies that trace out a certain key word in the book of Ephesians if you'd like a devotional to read throughout the week. We have Bible study workshops that will teach you how to read the Bible real-time, like, you know, in a live stream fashion like this. 
all my sermon notes, so all the sermons that I've done and series that I've done, all the notes are right here. And then Bible study worksheets, kind of like cheat sheets that outline what you should be looking for in a certain book. And then um, if you'd like to get a copy of my book, Fruitful, you can do so right here or sample it right here. You can get it on Amazon or wherever you, I think it's Christian Bookstore or whatever, um, .com, I think is where it is. But just go to Amazon right here and <laughs> make it easy on yourself. Uh, the book is called Fruitful. It's the essential keys to living the most abundant, satisfying Christian life this side of heaven. And uh, I think it'll be a blessing to you and a, a good gift for Christmas coming up in a few months. And then if you'd like to give... Our whole mission here, and I have a wife and two kids. We live in South Carolina. For those of you who are like, why would I support some 13-year-old that can't even read? Um, our mission here is to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible for themselves. That's our goal. And all these free resources, the study courses, the worksheets, the programs, all of it um, is completely supported by God through his people. And so if you believe in what God is doing here and us helping people how to understand the things of God and grow in truth, and reach the world with the gospel, then you can um, give right here through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 509. It's right here. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo, or uh, give on Patreon, which gives you access to exclusive benefits, um, like some of our church merch. Or you can just buy some church merch and wear, you know, reminders of Christ on your body and wear, you know, scripture all over your body and let people know you belong to the King. But that is all I have for you guys today. Don't want to overload you with all the information. Um, and I'll see you guys Tuesday. No Q&A this week. This kind of takes the place of that Q&A. But uh, Tuesday we'll get into Israel and what is going on with that. I probably won't talk about what most people are wanting me to talk about. Are we grafted into Israel? To what degree? Or maybe, maybe another time. Or maybe I'll do it Tuesday. I don't know yet. But pray for me, y'all. And we'll keep trucking through the series. And I'll see you guys on Tuesday. Check out our online church. Join if you haven't. It's pretty fire. And uh, you guys keep moving towards Jesus.